Howdy how, this is Aswi, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. What is up, guys, and welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm your host, AC, and with me is my boy from D.C., Eric Forward. What is goodie? So, Eric, man, it's been a crazy couple of days with NBA free agency kicking off. And it's kind of emblematic that even all these moves going on, we're going to begin with what I think is still the biggest story, which is Kevin fucking Durant deciding that after he left this Golden State Warriors team to pursue whatever it is he wanted to pursue for his legacy, things didn't quite work out, to say the least. And now he, just after signing a four-year extension, has demanded a trade. Eric, what was your initial reaction when you heard this news? I mean, my initial reaction was complete surprise because I looked at it as, to this date, a year and a half ago, when Durant Harden and Kyrie Irving all got together, we were looking at them as a potential dynasty. A year and a half later, one guy is off the team, another guy is disgruntled, and the other guy, they won't re-up. I was not expecting that to happen at all. So it completely caught me out of left field. Yeah, I mean... Basically, is the worst case scenario for a Nets team that traded away the farm to get James Harden. And I guess my question to you, Eric, is what does this say to you about Kevin Durant himself? So, this man clearly found winning in Golden State to be unfulfilling. He said as much multiple times. He didn't maybe get quite the credit that he thought he deserved. And now, in this season, in which he gets swept by the very team, that his former team beats in the NBA Finals. He's got to be feeling a certain type of way. We've seen him subtweeting about it. But he also deserves a little bit of blame in this, in my opinion. They gave him the keys to this franchise. They let him pick whoever he wanted. He picked Kyrie Irving. He wanted DeAndre Jordan. He wanted him so badly that when they had to trade away some players to get James Harden, who he also wanted, they didn't put him in that trade. They Instead of trading James Harden, they got rid of Jared Allen, who, by the way, ended up becoming an all-star for the Cavs. He got the coach he wanted, Steve Nash. And as we sit here today, despite getting all those things, and and to be fair, a lot of things going wrong that were out of his control, he wants out. To me, personally, it, it's very disappointing because I, I thought that he was going there to, to create his own legacy. And the idea that now he's going to piggyback on someone else's team is just disappointing. But what do you think, Eric? I think, so, we've always used it, well, not us use the idiom, but we've seen sports pundits use the idiom about inmates running the asylum. Now, I've always hated that analogy, but I I do think there's something to be said about not giving players too much say in personnel decisions. And... The Nets made a big mistake there. And now Kevin Durant, while in a four-year contract still that you just mentioned, 
He's trying to extricate himself from all of the decisions that he and Kyrie were allowed to pretty much unilaterally make. So I think when you say disappointment, that's the only word I could think to describe it. It's either disappointment or outright cowardice. So you got to choose which one. <laughs> the thing I don't get, though, is like, how does this even really help his legacy? Like if he just goes to some other sort of super team, isn't that just kind of the same thing that he was accused of doing in Golden State? Now, granted, the Golden State situation was basically incomparably bad because he was only allowed to go there due to a once-in-NBA history massive cap spike. But, like, you know, if he goes to Phoenix, a team that was in the finals just a couple of seasons ago and then was the number one seed in the West last year, or if he goes to Miami, another rumored team, a number one seed in the East this year, it, it just feels like he would still be kind of doing the same thing where he's going to somewhere else, joining up with a bunch of stars, and then... Why would winning in that situation be any more fulfilling than it was for him in Golden State? I, I just don't get it. So I don't mean to play armchair psychiatrist on Kevin Durant, but I have a hunch the Warriors winning that championship for the fourth time and this year without him, it finally just broke him. And all of the stuff about him going, teaming up, creating his own legacy in, in Brooklyn – He's just like, I, I know I'm not capable of doing it. I'm not that guy. And I'm just going to be the front runner and have the asterisk next to my legacy. Like I have next to the rings that I won in Golden State. I think he was broken. <laughs> I mean, I don't really blame him for feeling that way. Steph Curry has gone up in everyone's estimation. I actually think now the consensus opinion is that he was a better all-time player than Kevin Durant, even though... Throughout their careers, I think most people would have said that Kevin Durant was a better player, including when they were on the same team. Granted, there was there certain analytics folks and people who maybe watched a little bit closer and said maybe Steph was actually better even in those years. But at the end of the day, Steph has won two championships without Kevin Durant, and Kevin Durant has done nothing without Steph. So I, I could see why that's maybe affecting him psychologically a little bit. And, and to me, you know, the, the perfect example of that is just the tweets he's been just firing off on, on seemingly a daily basis, just, just fighting with random fans, you know, fighting with Charles Barkley. Uh, it, it's it's kind of just funny how a guy who's accomplished this much still feels the need to defend his legacy. And by the way, for the record, those are just the tweets that we see him making with his official account. This is Kevin Durant. We're talking about Kevin Berner Durant. So who even knows, you know, when... When Kevin Durant is the greatest, is posting something, it could be Kevin Durant, the real guy. So, you know, Reddit, yeah, Twitter, or wherever, so it could be him. And let's not add, AC, the tweets that we see are the ones that he allows the public to see. We know he also will DM you privately. We saw that with Michael Rappaport. So who knows what he's DMing people privately? That's absolutely true. You know, Eric, I don't blame him. You just can't win with these cats. I mean, <laughs> I, don't know what this, I don't know what to say to that. I don't know what to say to that. But, you know, like all of this stuff that we riff on Kevin about, he's the type of guy who's always just shooting himself in the foot. Like a lot of this stuff is self-inflicted. He doesn't have to be this sensitive. We talk about LeBron being passive aggressive, but largely LeBron doesn't outright, you know, really respond to his most fervent critics. This is from Kevin Durant's own doing. 
Yeah, no question. And the weird thing to me, Eric, is I actually feel like the Nets aren't even like that bad of a team if they bring everybody back. I mean, they actually had a decent offseason where they added Royce O'Neal. They just added today TJ Warren as well. And if you look at their roster, like one through eight, it's not a bad roster, especially if Ben Simmons can give them anything even remotely resembling what he used to give them, which begs the question then, Eric, what do the Nets really do here? Because they have a guy who is considered one of the best players in the NBA, regardless of how you rank him, whether you think he's number one, number two, number five, he's one of the elite players. He's still very much in his prime. He has four more years under contract. This is not an AD type situation where he's up the year afterward. And the going rate for superstars nowadays, or even maybe not so superstars, and we'll talk about the Rudy Gobert situation, is multiple first round picks and swaps. So if I'm the Nets, I'm holding out for something like that because they don't owe this guy a damn thing. I don't care if he wants to go to Phoenix or wherever he says he wants to go to. All right, Phoenix, then give me, you know, three first-round picks, three young players, two pick swaps, some crazy thing like that. And short of that, they are completely entitled to just keep him on the roster and try to run it back or at least convince him to. Check this, AC. If I'm Joe Sy, I mean, if I'm Joe Sy, I would be Chinese and a billionaire. So, <laughs> <laughs> But if I'm him, Tomorrow morning, I'm hitting both Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant up, and I'm telling them, I expect to see you in October. Full stop. You're not going anywhere. Kevin, you're under four more years. Kyrie, you you like opted into your last year. And a team with Ben Simmons, if Ben Simmons plays, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, TJ Warren, who's coming off of an injury, but if... He's good to go, a talented scorer, and a very good perimeter defender in, in Royce. Dog, you all can actually make noise. You can win. Yeah, and they still have Seth Curry. They still have Joe Harris, who, you know, basically had this ankle issue that required surgery and didn't play last season. So they have, like, shooters around these guys, too. So it's not like this team wouldn't be one of the contenders if these two guys just came back. And the Nets are under no obligation to acquiesce to them in any way, shape, or form. Especially to Kevin Durant, in my opinion, because with the Kyrie situation, like, in the end of the day, you got to get something for him. I don't know what you can get for him is, is another question that we should discuss in a second here. But with Durant, somebody's going to give up a lot for a guy that's under four years of team control. Although that does make me wonder, Eric, is that even as meaningful as maybe we think it is? Because... Kevin Durant being under contract for four more years clearly doesn't mean that much because in two years, he can just demand out again. So are we overrating the fact that maybe he has four years left on his deal? Or at least is the counterpoint to that, that maybe at least you have him under control. So even if, you want some, to, even if he wants to go somewhere else, you at least get some assets back for him in two years. A contract is only as strong as the person who's giving the money is willing to enforce the contract. Joe Sy wants to keep Kevin Durant in Brooklyn for his four years. He can do that unless Kevin Durant's about to retire and leave money on the table. And honestly, I find that proposition very, very unlikely. So, I mean, he can be a malcontent, but if he wants you to stay, you're staying, dude. So then let's talk about Kyrie for a second here. There was a lot of speculation at the start of this offseason that, you know, he was going to try to opt out. There was rumors of him signing a $6 million taxpayer mid-level exception from the Los Angeles Lakers. I never bought that for one second. Nobody leaves 
that much money on the table. Although Kyrie Irving, having just left a lot of money on the table last season with the vaccine situation, it was at least somewhat probable that maybe he would try something like that. But ultimately, the Nets kind of stare them down and and, and Kyrie and, and his, his people signed the one-year opt-in. The rumors are out there that he wants to go to L.A. And L.A., from everything that I've read and heard from the likes of Shams and Woj and others, is the only real suitor for Kyrie Irving, the only team desperate enough to move heaven and earth to get this guy who doesn't even believe the earth is round. That's the kind of mind we're talking about. A guy who we don't even know will show up to work on any given day of the week. He might just take a sabbatical. He, you know, some crisis could happen in some random country somewhere halfway across the world, and Kyrie will use that as an excuse not to work. We've seen this before from him. He's about as unreliable as a player as you could imagine, except for the fact that he can actually, you know, play competent basketball, which is more than we can say for one Russell Westbrook, who is taking up a massive portion of the Lakers cap. But again, if I'm the Nets, I'm not just taking Westbrook on for Kyrie Irving straight up. I'm going to want some assets. I'm going to want those 2027, 2029 first round picks the Lakers can trade. And by the way, I'm going to try to ask them to be unprotected or at least as limited protections as possible. What do you think, Eric? So first off, AC, you simultaneously said you never bought that Kyrie would go for the mid-level exception while saying that he's a flat earther. <laughs> That's true. You're putting, you're putting true. way too much stock in Kyrie being a logical actor. Right. So he, I always like thought it was a, a he, possibility. Like guy, he's like the guy like that, you know, when they talk about like nuclear deterrence. There's like always this idea of like, yeah, but there could be a crazy guy that doesn't act rationally. This is the guy that you're afraid has the nuclear bomb in his hands. Yeah, he's Kim Jong-il, basically. <laughs> I mean, for the, for the sake of this analogy, that's exactly who he is. And we don't trust him to, you know, <laughs> do the right thing with the weaponry. Yeah. But all, but all jokes aside, AC, I mean, we see that the market, no one really wants him. So... As far as leverage, it's twofold. It it would seem because no one wants them that the Lakers would be able to keep one or two of those uh, future draft picks. But at the same time, since the Lakers are the only one who wants them, and it seems they want them bad because they want to get out of that Westbrook contract, they're going to have to sweeten the deal. So if they're going to get Kyrie, one or both of those picks, they're going to the Nets. But I'm I'm guessing, considering the Jenny Buss thing we saw from yesterday, some in the Lakers front office might be a little reticent to do that. So I'm curious to see how this Kyrie situation plays out. Yeah, and for those of you who might have missed what happened with Jeannie Buss, that's the owner of the Lakers, she kind of had this vague, ambiguous tweet about Kobe Bryant and kind of missing him, but then there was also this implication that he was kind of a someone who put the team before himself which is kind of funny <laughs> Kobe revisionist no it's revisionist history yeah and so you know there's, there's a lot of angles that she could have just been talking about Kobe Bryant it's very possible um it, it could have been some kind of a subtweet at clutch or at the Lakers current players maybe Russell Westbrook maybe LeBron James it's unclear I'm not really sure how it's productive to tend on an ambiguous feel like that Regardless, I, I what I would guess, and this is pure speculation, is that maybe there's some kind of a balking at 
the potential tax bill she'd be paying if they take back a contract like Joe Harris. Now, I think if they had the option to get Joe Harris, they should jump on that because Joe Harris is a perfect fit around an AD LeBron Kyrie team because he's a dead-eye shooter, a guy who shot like 46-47% from three several years. He's led the league in three-point percentage. Granted, he's coming off of a, a very injured season, but you know you take that gamble. But it would mean a massive luxury tax hit for the Lakers. So there's some some reporting that the 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 talks between the teams are are in part about how much the Lakers are willing to take back in terms of bad salary. But the problem for the Lakers is Eric, they don't really have anything to sweeten the deal as you mentioned before, besides those picks, because the other players they have that they could trade that have any kind of salary are pretty much bad players. So you're talking about Talon Horton Tucker, who I think is a negative asset and, and might need a first-round pick to get him off their books. Like, that's, you know, how bad of a player he's been recently. I do think he's a bit miscast there, but he hasn't been positive asset at all. And then you have Kendrick Nunn, who I, I think we all think is a, a good player, though maybe a flawed player because of his size. But he also didn't play one minute the entirety of last season. So we don't know what we're getting with this guy, a guy who you know commands a $5 million salary in the NBA. So I'm not sure either of those assets are, are things that would sweeten the deal. So it'll be these picks and then taking on some salary back. And, and that's where the situation is right now. Yeah, all of this can like hinges on the whether Kevin Durant actually gets traded. I feel like if he gets traded, which the Kevin Durant trade potentially is going to happen before the Kyrie Irving trade it. It just has to. If he gets traded, then the Lakers might actually have some leverage as far as those draft picks because why else would you keep Kyrie around? You might as well like start stripping the team if Kevin Durant's out of there because your whole calculus as far as having a ready-to-win-now team, that's out the window. You ain't going nowhere with Kyrie Irving as your leader. Yeah, and I believe the Nets themselves have shown that they don't, they don't see Kyrie that way because they declined to give him a, a longer contract when he was looking for one, and, and they are even to this day, at least until he proves himself for a year, which is, it doesn't seem like he's inclined to do. And, and to your point, Eric, about the timing of this, I do agree that the Durant trade will most likely have to happen first, if it happens at all, because the Nets might be in a position where they take on certain salary back in a Durant trade, and then acquiring Westbrook could could put them in a situation where maybe they're hard capped or some other problems could come up where they would want some clarity first before taking on a big contract like Westbrook, who basically at this point, his value as a player is effectively zero, or I would, I would argue it's even quite negative. So it's purely a salary to move around. And that's why for all the reporting that Kyrie to the Lakers, something that's going to happen, I don't think it'll necessarily happen today or tomorrow. And the other angle here is, if the Nets decline to trade Kevin Durant and they try to play up a season with him, having Kyrie there and trying to make it work makes sense too, right? Like, or at least keeping him board until you get someone better than what the Lakers give, get for him. Because there is a situation where, you know, we're in the middle of the season and a team like the Sixers or a team like the Clippers, some, a team that's trying to upgrade their point guard position for some reason might make a move for Kyrie Irving because it's not going the way they maybe wanted it to go. Now, I don't know if Kyrie Irving is a solution to anybody's problems, but, I, you know, maybe they'd hold out hope for that to happen. As an aside, AC, with Russell Westbrook's name circulating in these trade talks or being, you know, moved so his salary can be dumped, can you imagine if this trade doesn't go through and Russ is still on that team? A Russell Westbrook 
that for the last year has seemingly balked at all criticism. Can you imagine what type of malcontent he will be for the upcoming Lakers season? The Lakers need to hope that they can offload him and get Kyrie because it's going to be hell for them if he's still there. Well, you know, when you when you put it like that, Eric, it makes you wonder if maybe it it will happen this summer because it's not just the Lakers that would be worried about Westbrook being a locker room problem. It's also the Nets. I can't imagine they would want a malcontent Kyrie around. We already know that Kyrie causes chaos in locker rooms. He's blatantly said through various reporters that he will sign the Lakers next season. That's his plan. At least that's what he's saying. Of course, we know that Kyrie Irving has often said one thing and done another thing. He said he was going to run it back and they, you know, they'd be back next year in Cleveland. A few months later, he demanded a trade. He said he was going to resign in Boston, try to have his number in the rafters. Not long after that, he wanted out. And next thing you know, he was signing with Brooklyn. So you can't exactly hold him at face value, but he said openly that he's going to sign the Lakers. And thus, he's not a kind of guy that you'd keep around. He's not exactly a, a, a positive locker room influence in that way. So there is an incentive for both teams to get rid of, even if not for each other, these two players off of their squads before this season starts, even before training camp starts, I think. Yeah, no doubt. I just can't see, honestly, either one of them, now that you've made that point about Kyrie being a malcontent as well, I don't know why I never thought of that, but he's probably, if he's playing for the Nets under that one-year deal, I can see a, a situation where Kyrie just sits out games for who God, God knows what. I mean, we remember the year before the vaccine, AC, he was just taking off games for like personal stuff. One of yeah. the times he, he took off games that go to his sister's birthday party or something like. Bro, he took off games because of the, the capital insurrection. <laughs> I forgot all about the cap. See, it's so many things with Kyrie at some point. You start forgetting some of his excuses for not playing. He obviously does not actually want to play. He wants to get paid, but not actually have to play. And the funny thing is, they have two guys like that because they also have Ben Simmons, who has not played basketball in one year, and who, by a lot of various reports from people like Nick Ferdell, who are very close to the Nets, there were multiple times towards the end of last season, and even in the playoffs, where the Nets and their players really believed that Ben Simmons was about to play for them. Like he was suiting up and he'd show up at practice and then he'd just dip out after a few minutes randomly. Or he'd be rebounding at a game, but then not really participating any other way. Like he'd be rebounding people's shots in the shoot around, but then like just not be on the bench or just be on the bench in some fancy suit, but have like no intention of playing. So they have two guys like this. Like I can't imagine being anybody in the front office or any of the more quote unquote normal teammates of these guys. Like what a what a what a shit show that organization has been for two years. And it's crazy, Eric, because as you said, they were well positioned to be contenders. They kind of still are if they if they could just get it together, but it just seems like a bridge too far for this squad. I don't know if you saw the memes on the internet when they were speculating if Kyrie and Katie were gonna move. People were showing memes of someone with like back pain saying that Ben Simmons, the second they trade uh, the two guys, <laughs> he was going to start holding his back. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's exactly what's going to happen with Corbett, unless he just wants, you know, to run his own squad over there. I, we, we have no idea what the hell Ben Simmons wants at this point. 
I would be surprised if he wants to even play on a basketball court. We don't even know that much about him. That's how bad it's been with him. You know, AC, I actually expected them to attempt to move Ben Simmons this offseason, and I thought they would potentially try to get Minnesota to bite. But then Minnesota went out and got Rudy Gobert, and that took me really from left field. I couldn't believe that at all. Well, I mean, that's a, a, a grade A pivot there from from our uh, what we're talking about to our next topic, which is this Gobert trade. Eric, I can't remember a trade that was just more shocking to me in just so many ways than this Gobert trade. Like, I, I, I really can't remember a more one-sided star trade. Like, I'm, I think Gobert, we can say, at least is some level of a star, right? I mean, he's made a couple... In a third team at All-NBA, he's a second team All-NBA. He's been a three-time Defensive Player of the Year. He's been an All-Star, I believe, about three times. You would think that the team getting that player would be winning a trade. You know, it's, it's a classic, like, you don't, you'd rather have a dollar in the, in the four quarters or whatever it is, the, the old Bill Simmons analogy. This trade is ridiculous, though. I, I just don't understand what Minnesota's doing here. I mean, the amount of picks that they're sending out I believe it's four first-round picks, a couple of pick swaps, and then it can go up to seven, basically, plus decent players, too, like uh, Vanderbilt, who last year, I mean, there was so much hype about him being sort of a Rodman-esque player, and he's part of this deal, too. All for Rudy Gobert, who, you know, I understand the reasoning, the basketball reasons why he could help them, but just from, like, an age perspective, he's so far outside the timeline of the one guy they really need to build around, and that's I think we'd both agree, Anthony Edwards, that by the time Anthony Edwards is ready to compete, Gobert is going to be past his prime. Like, he's going to be in his mid-30s. Like, what the hell's going on here? Well, we were this week old when we learned that the Minnesota Timberwolves seem to think that Rudy Gobert is the second coming of Wilt Chamberlain. Seriously. Because I can't imagine... Any center in NBA history, like eliciting that type of haul, it was humongous what they gave up for him. And honestly, AC, we, we've had this discussion. I'm not exactly sure it's going to work out for them as well as they're banking on. I get why they did it, because Cat doesn't like banging down low. He doesn't like guarding centers. But honestly... They needed to force Cat to stop being soft, develop his defensive chops, be a traditional defensive center, and like fill out the fill out the rest of the ro- roster around the margins. Because Cat and Anthony Edwards should be a one-two punch that in two or three years are competing for a finals. But I think this is letting Cat get out like the easy street because. I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know, AC. It's just, yeah, I, I would be very surprised if this works out. I just feel like they're setting Anthony Edwards up to fail here because there's going to come a time where this guy, I really believe, like, barring injury, that he's a guy who could be the best player on a championship team. Like, he's that level of talent. But when that time comes, he may be in a situation where they don't have the draft capital, you know, move the players they need to move or, or or add that talent sort of the way that the Grizzlies have done with John Morant where they keep having all these young players join their squad and they kind of develop naturally. They've decided for some reason they're going to take a, a kid who's, you know, 
super young and they added a center who you know he's a good player but is just a basically a decade older than him and 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 not in a position by the way at center where people age very well i mean like with the exception of like kareem and a few other guys in nba history centers don't age all that well and even a, like a 20% decline in gobert's athleticism could be fatal to what he needs to do on the on the court but Eric, I want to talk to you a little bit about just Gobert himself, right? Because we'll talk about the Minnesota fit more specifically in a second. But there's a lot of debate in the NBA. And we've had this debate in this podcast multiple times about how good is Rudy Gobert really. The analytics show consistently year in, year out, that he is an unbelievably useful basketball player. He's the kind of guy who can single-handedly make you a top 10 defense, almost regardless of how bad your personnel is. However, we have seen in the playoffs when you face certain teams, and by the way, the very teams that you have to go through to win an NBA championship, we saw this the last two years with the Clippers, we saw with the Mavs this year, teams that can five out you with, with, with centers who can hit threes, Gobert doesn't have the ability to impact the game in quite the same way. Now, the counterpoint to that, Eric, is that I think that it's less him being exposed and more the other players on the Jazz really being targeted. And he just isn't in the position to like cover for them the way he is in the regular season. But it's also somewhat alarming that you have this guy basically there for bolster defense, but at the highest level, he's not able to do that like he's done in the regular season. I'm going to defend Pepe Le Pew here. <laughs> you can only guard one person at a time, yeah. honestly. So I've never bought the argument that he's not that impactful because teams spread out, go small, and he can't guard guys on the perimeter. Like, what center in the history of centers actually did that a lot? Like, come on, man. He's, he's an elite center. He's actually a, a historically great defensive center. Yeah, like, no question. Full stop. Like, any, any measure will show that. Like, I don't care if people want to talk about him, but he really is that good defensively. Check this out. Did you know for win shares per 48 minutes, historically, for their first nine seasons, Rudy Gobert is sixth. I mean, and and the other guys on the list, by the way, are all Hall of Famers or future Hall of Famers. Exactly. So he's legit, man. That being said, teams will go small and... They're going to give up points, man. <laughs> They're going to give up a lot of points when teams go small. Now, the inverse of that is they will have an advantage on the boards, of course. Uh, he's a competent rebounder. Cat can rebound. But when teams actually spread them out, it's going to be a bloodbath. So I honestly just don't think it's going to work against those elite teams that can play versatile offenses. I agree with your assessment on Gobert, Eric. I actually feel like, and the stats back is up, if you look at it, even his playoff defensive numbers, in isolation, he's actually held up pretty damn well against guards. I guess the one thing he isn't able to do is like stand on the perimeter say, at, the, at the corner three and then make it to the rim and then protect a team who's gotten blown by. But I would say that in the entire league, there's very few guys who could do that consistently. Like, and those guys are like Giannis, AD, maybe Draymond if he's really feeling it like that that's a very rare kind of defender who can do that and by the way it's not fair to expect your center 
to do that. Like, how about the fact that I I, I personally believe that guys like Donovan Mitchell have, have gotten to really bad habits of just letting their guy buy them and just w- and waiting for Gobert to bail them out. So I, I completely agree with you. I think that the blame on Gobert on the defensive end in terms of playoff basketball has been way overblown. But I also agree with your point that the best teams are going to do this. And so his impact is just going to be reduced, period, because he's going to have to stand at the perimeter to guard him, it seems like. If you're talking about the Warriors, the team that just won the championship, they're going to put him in pick and rolls. They're going to force him to either come up and trap, maybe switch. I don't think he could hold up, you know, in a switch against someone like Steph, but they you know, it might be what's necessary. And then somewhere else, someone else is going to have to cover for where he's not, which is under the hoop. The one positive here, though, on the defensive end uh, that I see is that they do have somewhat more stout wing defenders than the than the Jazz had, because I I do believe in Edwards, Jaden McDaniels as well. It can totally hold up defensively in a way that I don't think anyone in the Jazz really can. So there may be a little less necessity for him to bail people out. I don't know. What do you think, Eric? I mean, yeah, but I can see where you're coming from. I just don't put so much stock that young defenders, young perimeter defenders like Anthony Edwards, oh, who's still learning. Yep. I, I just don't see that they're going to coalesce to be a good defense right away that they're going to be able to compete while Rudy Gobert is in his prime. When yeah. he's giving you the most value and bang for your buck. Yeah, like, and we're, I, I'm assuming you're talking specifically about playoff basketball because I think Gobert will make them a pretty good defense in the regular season. But it's when, oh, yeah, when, definitely playoffs against them, like putting someone who could shoot from the perimeter at, at the five. So, thus, it just takes Gobert away from his danger zone, which is near the hoop on defense. Yeah, bro, they're going to be regretting all those picks they gave up in the future for Rudy Gobert. But, but here's like, the other thing, Eric. I think the much more pro- problematic thing with Rudy Gobert is offense. I mean, we just saw a playoff series where he could not punish like little guards in the post over and over again. I mean, he just he just couldn't do anything about it. And so you're basically saying that he's a pure lob threat kind of player right now. But then, so what's Cat gonna do? So if you're running pick and rolls with you know, Rudy Gobert, let's say you're running an Anthony Edwards, Rudy Gobert pick and roll. Is Cat just going to be just standing at the three-point line? Or if you're posting up Cat, is is Gobert on the weak side? And, and does that work from a spacing perspective? So what I'm saying is I, I like, you know, that they're trying this different approach. They're trying to do this Twin Towers thing, I guess. But I still think when it really matters, you're going to need to play Cat at the five. So you're basically talking against the highest level competition, which, by the way, if you're trading all these picks away, should still be your goal. Is It should be looking ahead to the highest level of competition that you may be facing down the road. You're going to have to play Cat at the five. So Gobert is going to be playing, what, like 20 minutes, 25 minutes? And you're giving up all these picks. Not to mention, he's going to be making well over $40 million in a couple of years, not not even like this season, in a couple of seasons from now. So he's, he's a lot of money too, right? He's not just the picture getting up. You got to pay this man quite a bit of salary going forward. Imagine playing what's essentially a designated hitter, $40 million a year. Yep. <laughs> That's crazy. When you could just have the guy who's 6'11", who shoots threes, 
You could have him as your center, but who just for whatever reason won't develop defensive skills that most modern centers have. Make it make sense. Yeah, and you know, last season, the Wolves, they covered for Cat by using these weird traps and, and almost like blitzes, which is a very gimmicky defense that basically ever since the Spurs in 2014 destroyed the Miami Heat's trap, like teams don't use for a very long stretch. That was the Wolves' base defense, just to cover for Cat. And I, I do I do understand the logical perspective of them thinking, hey, we can't win playing this scheme, and Cat isn't defending any other way, so we need to get Gobert. The problem is they give the farm for Gobert. I mean, by the way, how many times is Danny Ainge going to flat out rob people? I, I would never make a trade with this man. I mean, are you telling me that, like, who are they even bidding against? Like, two first-round picks wouldn't have been... I'm not even sure I would be comfortable giving up two first-round picks for Rudy Gobert, much less four and plus multiple swaps and plus young players. At this point, Danny Ainge is Billy the Kid or or some great Western robber because right. he, he used to do it when he was, you know, the, the GM of the Celtics, and now he's still doing it with the Jazz. I, I have no clue how he was able to talk the Timberwolves into giving all of those first-round picks up, but... He accomplished it. So, uh, again, I guess the Timberwolves think that he's the second coming of some all-time great center, but I don't get it. But let's say he is that, Eric. Let's say that he is the best version of Gobert. Uh, Let's just say he's like an all-time elite defensive center, and he plays really well for the next few years. Are they in a position to win a championship in the next two or three years? If the answer is no... Now he's going to start moving out of his prime, and there's no way that age 35, age 36, he can be that defensive anchor that they need him to be. And that's probably when, if you're being realistic with the timeline of someone like Anthony Edwards, he's really ready to compete at the highest level. So I, I just don't understand it from that perspective. Check this out, AC. How many guards or wing players in general have come into the league ready to win a championship at the age of 21, 22? I mean, I would argue none. I mean, is Magic like the only example of someone who really did that to some degree? Literally the only one I can think of is Magic Johnson. Yeah. And the team was like, it had so many great players that even when he made mistakes, Kareem was there. Kareem! Right. Maybe the second or third greatest player of all time. Absolutely. So that being said, if Anthony Edwards is going to be your Michael Jordan, which one day he could be, I actually think he has that level of talent. If he's going to be that for you, he's not going to be ready until he's like 26 to really be year in, year out, like taking you to the promised land. As you said, Rudy Gobert is going to be in his mid-30s, man. How does this work out for you? Wasn't the draft capital, capital didn't that mean more to you for when he's potentially ready to lead? Yeah. Wouldn't that have meant more for you then so you could actually trade for a running mate that's as good as him? Or not as good as him, but a good two-punch for him? Right. I actually think it boxes them into this weird position where it's it seems to me inevitable that in a few years they'll be end up trading Cat, who who signed a uh, an extension, which I, I'm sure was a no brainer for them. I mean, they should have given an extension, you know, guys like that with that kind of talent don't just come to Minnesota. But now, like in a few years, when Gobert is old and he's making way too much money, 
that's not even an easy guy to get rid of from a contract perspective. So it's going to be Cat who ends up being the guy that gets moved. I actually just see it playing out that way, short of them literally winning a championship, which is very hard for me to imagine with this roster. And by the way, just real quickly, I can't believe that they did this trade and somehow didn't get rid of D'Angelo Russell. Because when I look at the, the Timberwolves, Russell to me is just a massive weakness. I, I, I really think he's the biggest thing that holds them back. There's times where his shot selection is so poor. His decision making is so poor. He's not a good defensive player. He will go through entire quarters just not realizing that, you know, Cat has it going or Edwards has it going. And nobody wants him. He's, he's a negative asset as well. At least get that guy off of your books. I, I just don't get how he's still there. Well, he's also superfluous. Everything that he's able to do well, Anthony Edwards can probably do better. That's a great point. Honestly. Yeah. So I don't, I don't even know why he's there. He's getting paid pretty well to actually be like a poor man's version of Ant at this point. So, yeah, I agree. They should have got him off the books, but it is what it is. From the from the Jazz perspective, Eric, do you think this signals a full rebuild? Because they got rid of Royce O'Neal for a first-round pick, who, as you discussed earlier, was one of their only good defenders basically this last few years, from the perimeter at least. And, you know, now they don't have Gobert their second best player, clearly. Is this a full rebuild or are they going to try to retool around Mitchell? Because right now they're saying the goal is to retool around Mitchell. They now have all these assets they can try to turn into something. It's kind of hard for me to imagine that that's the plan. And I'm not even sure that Mitchell is good enough to really retool around unless you actually use those pieces to get someone better than Mitchell. So I think Danny Ainge is one of the more intelligent front office execs in the league. And because I believe he's intelligent, I can't fathom a world where he is actually attempting to build around Donovan Mitchell. Because, honestly, we've seen what Donovan Mitchell's ceiling is. And that's not a guy that is either your second or, honestly, on on some championship team, maybe he's your third best player? I mean, (laughs) I don't know. Like, I, I just don't see a team with Donovan Mitchell as your lead guy, I don't see that team getting very far. So, no, I I don't think so. I think they're going to actually, like, raise everything to the ground. I got to be honest, Eric. I'm terrified of the Knicks trading for this guy. I mean, it just has Knicks written all over it. He's already been linked there a couple of times. And and it's interesting because Donovan Mitchell, at times, has proven to be very effective in a playoff game. He's one of the only players in NBA history to have multiple 50-point playoff games and there have been times like that where it seems like wow this guy is the next Dwayne Wade but then on the other hand the Dwayne Wade comparison falls completely short when you you factor in that his defense has declined so much that I actually think he's one of the worst defensive players amongst star players like everyone talks about the Trey Young types and of course Trey Young is really bad but when I see Donovan Mitchell I see a guy who has tools he has athleticism he has strength he has length but he is so lazy on defense. I mean, he will just die on a screen. He's, he's basically he's basically just gotten used to having Gobert behind him in the regular seasons and, and, and just lets guys blow by him. And if that doesn't change, I don't really know what his ceiling is. And I've always thought that he's a bit too much of a gunner and takes some really poor shots at times and, and doesn't look for the pass enough. So, you know, when you combine poor defense with poor shot selection, you're looking at a guy who... 
really is probably, as you said, maybe a second or third best option on a championship team, and certainly not an option one. Wait, AC, you're not excited about a potential backcourt of Jalen Brunson and Donovan Mitchell? Yeah, the the so he'll be the sixth seed for the next eight years. <laughs> Classic Knicks. Uh, you all will be a sieve if you were to do something like that. I, I hope the Knicks management thinks about that before they do it, but it does seem like that would be the perfect Knicks move. By the way, speaking of the perfect Knicks move, we got to talk about this Jalen Brunson thing. So Jalen Brunson really had a pretty good playoffs, I would say, overall. I, I think he's proven that he could be a useful player on a playoff team. He has this array of sort of weird floaters and, and just great old man game footwork. And, and he was, he's actually relatively efficient for a guy his size, too. But at his best, we're talking about a guy who is a glorified sixth man. He's not that tall. He's not that good defensively. And we had a bidding war against nobody but ourselves for this man services in part apparently because his dad Rick Brunson was our general manager and president's very close friend because worldwide west knew him from back in the day and introduced him to Leon Rose he was Leon Rose's first client and then Rick Brunson by the way who is an assistant coach of the New York Knicks so they all hooked up his son and their family friend's son with a four-year, $104 million contract, which is kind of baffling to me. It's not even that it's that much of an overpay as the number seems, because I do think with the current cap numbers in which guys are making $250 million contracts, 104 isn't like a killer contract. But why the Knicks? Like, this is not a team that's on the verge of contention with two other stars where we just need a little bit more. This is a team that's going nowhere. And now we've committed a massive portion of our salary to him and Julius Randle, who is another guy who I just think is completely overpaid. What the hell are we doing here? You're being the Knicks. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> I mean, is there any other answer for that? I mean, the, the, the funny thing is, I thought this regime would change things. But actually, it has been super secretive. And they seem completely opposed to the idea of doing any kind of rebuild. And, and by the way, when I say super secretive, for those who might not know, Worldwide West and, and Leon Rose, they don't even talk to the media like at all. They some they have some like I've never I've been a Knicks fan my entire life. I've never seen a front office of the Knicks be this dismissive of the media and just they're so secretive and this is their fucking master plan. Get Jalen Brunson on a four-year $104 million, their family friend. That's the big thing that you know that we're waiting all the time for. They don't seem to understand or care that this team is stuck in mediocrity right now. At best, we're a play-in team or maybe a low playoff seed team. And we are going to give up the farm to be in that same situation for years going forward. In part because those guys don't want to be fired. That's now year three of their regime and they have nothing to show for it. And so they're they're making a quote-unquote big move, which is the least exciting big move that it could possibly have made. Fret not, AC. At some point, they might get the big jambalaya. <laughs> Which is what? That's Zion Williamson. That's my <laughs> that's my <laughs> nickname for him. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I, I feel like that's never felt farther away than it does right now. But, you know, let, let, let's, let's pivot. Because I don't want to talk about this depressing Brunson free agency. So a lot of players signed extensions this offseason. For all the talk of, oh, the players are wanting out left and right. 
And by the way, they may still do that now that they have their contracts in hand, as you saw with Durant. But we had a lot of guys who, who signed the extensions from Devin Booker to Zach Levine to Nikola Jokic to John Morant, Bradley Beal. And I think the biggest news story one would have to be Zion Williamson because for several years now, we've heard that he's discontented with the organization, that he wants to force away to New York, that he's not going to sign his rookie extension. I, I personally found that a bit hard to imagine. He's Here's a guy who's had several injuries already in his young career, and passing up that kind of guaranteed money would, would seem a bit of a risk for him. But you got also to factor in the, that the Pelicans looked pretty damn competent last season. I, I think give David Griffin credit for building a, a competent roster. The CJ McCollum trade really worked out for them. Brandon Ingram is taking a step forward. They have a lot of young, exciting players on that team. And he said about four or five times in interviews recently that he's just super excited about what the Pelicans are doing. I think this is something where as NBA fans, we should be happy that guys who were incentivized to re-up with these contracts, that they're taking those contracts and, and knock on wood. Hopefully they don't pull a Kevin Durant, but they're taking these contracts under the auspices of staying in their, you know, their home bases. Right. So I actually think this is a good thing. I, I was super excited for Bradley Bill with the $250 million contract. I mean, that's a lot of money to pay Bradley Bill for a team that's never actually going to compete. But at the same time, remember, AC, 10 years ago, we were complaining about these guys not staying in, in these markets that were small markets. They were going to New York or they were going to L.A., you know, this was or Miami. This was like a big deal. Now these guys are re-upping. They're staying in these markets. So I think we should actually be congratulating these guys. Yeah, I agree. Though it's interesting that you bring up Bradley Beal because out of these guys who sign extensions, I still look at him as the guy who might still try to ask out now that he's got his money. I, I just, you know, it, it's very hard for me to gauge Bradley Beal and his feelings toward being that franchise because he said things about, you know, wanting to be there the whole time. But I'm not even sure the Wizards really want him there for that. Like, I mean... Like, if they get something for him, I don't know, Eric, you're closer. You actually live in D.C., literally. What's your sense about both how Bradley Beal feels toward the organization and the city and how maybe the city or organization feel toward him? So I think Bradley Beal is genuine and wanting to play in Washington. I think he's one of these guys who, who from what I've gleaned in, like, pods that I've seen him on and, and interviews I've seen him on, is that he's one of these guys who does think staying in one team for the majority of your career that's like a legacy builder that being said i absolutely think for the right price the wizards would be willing to trade him yeah because i i just don't think that bradley beal is a number one option even at his best and by the way he hasn't been as good as he was a couple of seasons ago he's just not good enough of a defensive player he's he's another one of those guys who's a one-way player and yes, he, he you know he came very close to leading the league and scoring a couple times. He's been a thirty point per game scorer, but it never feels like any of that translates to winning in any kind of meaningful way. So I don't think that the Wizards are going anywhere with him, almost regardless of who they get, unless they get someone who's actually just better than him. Like say if Kevin Durant miraculously has a change of heart and decides to come home to DC, which we both know won't happen, but if he did, that maybe that would be the right situation for him. But I see Beal as a guy who's like a supporting player on a on a great team, like like not, not a role player. Right? I mean, like a, a second option or third option, 
but definitely not a first option in any kind of a serious contender. So Bradley Bill has a lot of Kevin Love in him for me. Mm, and I like this comparison. The reason I'm going with Kevin Love, remember when he played for the Timberwolves AC and he was giving 25 and 15 seasons? Yep. Losing but seasons. We, yeah. Losing seasons, though. So we always knew it was nice. He can fill up a box sheet, but it's kind of empty calories. Bradley Bill has a lot of that in him. Like, on a very, very good team, like you said, he's a second or even a third option. But he's miscast with the Wizards. He's the number one option, and that's why they go nowhere, because he's your number one option. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Eric. I, I just I just don't see it with Beal. I, I think that there may be, like, he could be the third starter to, to make a team into a super team, that kind of thing. And maybe a, some team would give up the farm for him. We know, for instance, that Joel Embiid has pushed multiple times for Bradley Beal. In fact, wanted him over James Harden, which, in retrospect, if Bradley Beal could have been acquired, might have been the right move. Of course, Beal got injured last season, which made that entire trade discussion moot. But I, I just don't think that he's good enough as, as a number one option. I, I'm not even sure I'd be all that excited about him being my second or third option unless I'm, I'm pairing him with a legitimately elite player. Like, you put him with, like, Giannis or... Someone like that, it's different, obviously. But, Eric, the other team that... I, I feel like it's not going to give me enough buzz for what they did this offseason, and I would argue maybe even had the best offseason of any team, is the Boston Celtics. They got Malcolm Brogdon for a first-round pick and a couple of players in Neesmith and Tice who really weren't rotation players in any meaningful way. They got Gallinari, who was traded and then waived. And they basically just paid them the taxpayer mid-level exception. I think these are two guys who can immediately help their team in, in different ways. What do you think, Eric? I mean, Gallinari as a stretch four speaks for itself. So I don't really need to say much about him. The pick that I will zero in on is Brogdon, who answers every need that the Celtics actually need. They needed another ball handler who could create for others. Well, you got that in Brogdon. And if he's healthy, he has a history of being able to be a floor spacer as well. So I think the Brogdon pick, of course, Gallinari is a good pick. That Brogdon uh, pick was, they knocked out the park with it. I think it's a great pickup. Eric, you and I have talked about this a bit, you know, off air, but this idea of Brogdon being this very efficient 50-40-90 guy who's also got a defense, it is a bit of a relic of the past. He has not been that player, right? If he was that player, he wouldn't be half such a cheap price as, as the Celtics acquired him for. What, what's going on with Brogdon? Is, is it just an injury thing? Has he just lost his form a little bit? Do you think it's something that maybe if he's healthy, he could, he could get back to? Or is, it, or is it just like a permanent decline? I don't think it's a permanent decline. I think it's a combination of injuries. And honestly, AC, he was just miscast in Indiana. Yeah. He started taking a lot of threes off the dribble where previously he was a catch and shoot spacer. I think now playing with Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart, he will be able to go back to how he was originally deployed as a floor spacer. And I suspect those averages will creep back towards his historical highs. I don't think what we saw in Indiana is a great indicator of what he really is as, as a shooter. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a good way to look at it. I, 
too often we tend to underrate role on a team and and he was basically asked to be one of the primary scoring options on a, on that team where he, what he really is is a guy who can flex between the one and the two as needed because he can shoot pretty well and and, and, and contribute defensively so he, he really does fit every need that they have and by the way it's kind of funny to me that marcus smart went on this rant recently about how they need a point guard but because of him they went to the finals and now they just the first thing they did was basically acquire a point guard. So the Celtics really disagreed with Mr. Smart's assessment of himself. Good for them because Marcus Smart is an erratic point guard. I like Marcus Smart. Same. There are things that he does excellent, but as a facilitator, I would prefer Brogdon. I think he will be a stabilizing influence. I mean, they had some of the most unbelievable turnovers throughout their playoff run, but in the finals. It got like comically bad to the point that they were just inventing new ways to turn the ball over. I remember there was one point where there was a, a six or seven position in a row where every turnover was a different type of turnover. There was like a travel. There was a, a, a fumbled pass. There was a double dribble. It was just like every possible kind of turnover one after another. Just having Brogdon be one more guy who can confidently handle a basketball, make decisions. I think it, it, that's really the only flaw of a very, very good Boston Celtics team. And the fact that they kept their entire core intact to do it is, is, is really scary for the rest of the East and even the whole league, I'd say. For my uh, bet, AC, I would wager that the Celtics had the best offseason thus far of any of the teams in the league. I, I, I would agree. I, I mean, I think it's hard to completely say that until we know how some of these things play out. Like someone could get Kevin Durant and it could completely change their franchise, obviously. But I, from what we've seen so far, the Celtics were already really good and they just got better without sacrificing a single thing. Yeah. That is the surprising part. You know, I, I suspected at some point they would look to move Jalen and get something for him. But they were able to keep them, man, you know, and the addition of the two pieces. So that's surprising. They're going to be, if not in the championship winning, they're going to be a contender for the championship for the years to come. So that's pretty dope. Basketball is always great when, you know, Boston is one of the better teams. Yeah, like they have the, the most annoying media. So it's just funny when they're really into it. <laughs> Inversely, AC, if the Celtics had the best offseason thus far, honestly, I think the Timberwolves actually had the worst, giving up all of those picks. Yeah, it's funny because they're probably going to win more games next season. I think they'll actually be a really good regular season team. But just from the long term, shooting themselves in the foot, nature of what happened, it's hard for me to say that anyone had a worse offseason. Because even the Nets, for all the turmoil they we can say that they have, I mean, clearly it's been a, a disaster from the way it was, you know, a year and a half ago, they at least still haven't committed anything more. Like, they haven't lost Kyrie. They haven't technically lost Durant yet. So there's still time to salvage it maybe or, or maybe get some godfather return back. But the Wolves are all in on a team whose best player is, you know, basically way too young to be someone who can compete for a championship, whose second best player is an only offense player, and whose third best player is an only defense player. So I just, I just don't get it. I, I think they're really screwed. I really believe it. I want to root for them. I would love for Minnesota to have some sort of relevance. I heard this. Actually, uh, this is credit to John Krasinski, a longtime writer for the Wolves. He said this on a pod that uh, 
in the last 30 years, the Wolves have gotten out of the first round one time. And and the and it's not even like they're like a competitive team that's lost in the first round. They either like they basically win like twenty to thirty games on on average most seasons. So this is a really struggling franchise that I think will at least have a couple of good years out of this where they have some success at least in the regular season and maybe make a couple second rounds, maybe even a conference finals, maybe. But man, this long term, just thinking of what where this puts them to when Anthony Edwards is really ready to compete, it just makes me sad that they're, they're sabotaging their own franchise. But I will say this, AC. We're saying the Timberwolves had the worst offseason so far. If the Nets end up giving away Kevin Durant and then trading off Kyrie, with the added addition of the fact that they gave away James Harden back in February, that by far will be one of the most disastrous things that has ever happened to an NBA franchise. And as a person who's rooting for LeBron, I'm sitting here with bated breath, waiting patiently <laughs> until, until something materializes. Oh my God. The funniest thing is that LeBron guys like the two of us are finding ourselves in a position where we are depending on the guy who left LeBron high and dry a few years ago and then went on to become one of the most erratic personalities in the NBA. And by the way, who never quite matched his Cleveland production in playoff series to come after that. That's the guy that LeBron people and Lakers fans are rooting for, which just shows how fucking bad Russell Westbrook is. (laughs) Horrible. But you know, I mean, everyone needs their Dennis Rotman. Kyrie is LeBron's Dennis Rotman. So I'm, I'm crossing my fingers hoping that we could get that reunion. Well, you heard it from Eric first. We got some prayers for a Kyrie-LeBron reunion. For all you guys out there, though, until we find out whether that actually happens, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions or you want to get on us for our takes, if you're a Minnesota guy out there who thinks that we're idiots and that the Minnesota Timberwolves have made a fantastic trade, please let us know. Email us at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram or any other platform you want to do. Until next time, though, guys, thanks for listening, and good luck to all your teams for the rest of free agency. Deuces!